I'm Robin Horsfall, former SAS soldier. I'm an author, a poet, paratrooper, a medic. Um, I'm an inspirational speaker, and I'm here tonight with Savia, Us People Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Yes People Podcast. I'm your host, Sandy Rocks, and today I'm humbled to have Robin here with me, who is an ins- inspirational and motivational speaker, also an ex-SAS soldier. So, Robin, thank you so much for coming on the Yes People Podcast. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. So, so this is going to be interesting. Because of your background and, and your experience... I I definitely would love to know your story, especially when it comes to where you were brought up and how that influenced you to be the person who you are today, Robin. Okay. Um, I was born in um, the south of England in a little village called Webham, uh, just outside Farnham in Surrey, um, not far from Aldershot. And um, I was my mother's first child. She was 17. And um, my father was in prison, so we lived with um, we lived with my grandmother in a, and my grandfather in a little 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 a little sort of council house. And um, I never knew my father. I met him when I was about when I was about twenty seven. And um, my mother got pregnant again um, while my father was in prison, so he divorced her from prison for a low moral standing. <laughs> and um, yeah, and um, a man called Jeffrey Horsfall married my mother when I was nearly eight and adopted me. So that's where I got my name from, Robin Horsfall. Um, and Jeffrey Horsfall was my stepfather. Um, he was from Leeds. Uh, he, he, we had a very, very difficult relationship. So um, his way of dealing with my uh, resentment of him becoming my father uh, or appearing in my life when I hadn't had a father before, um, was to batter me. And um, I'm not talking about getting a smack. I'm talking about getting hit 30 or 40 times and dragged out from under the bed. So uh, I ended up hating him and letting him know I hated him. Um, when I was um, 11, I went to grammar school, and um, he uh, he was rather resentful of the fact that, you know, the cricket gear and the clothes and the uniform. And uh, one day I was about 11 and he decided that he was going to give me a good hiding again. And instead of running away, I just turned and glared at him and he knocked me to the floor and I got up and glared at him again and didn't cry. And um, he never hit me after that. He left me alone. Um, I mean, not, it's not such a simple story. These things are complicated, more complicated than people would like to say. Yeah. But, um, he, uh, we became close friends before he died, so it's not a just a, it's not just a bad sad story. Um, when I was um, when I was fourteen, um, I was doing very badly at school, so I decided to go to a, uh, an army recruitment office uh, on Hospital Hill in Aldershot, and um, decided I wanted to join the army. School leaving age in nineteen seventy two was. Um, 15. So 1971, I went into the army recruitment office and said, can I join the army? 
Yeah. And uh, they said, yeah, okay, uh, but you can't join until next year when you leave school. So um, I played truant from school for the next six months and then um, turned up um, at a selection centre at Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham. And um, I wanted, I'd been a St. John's ambulance boy and I wanted to be join the army as a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps. I wanted to be a medic. And um, the... Um, the people that selected me after my test said, no, um, we don't want you to be a medic. Um, how about being a member of the parachute regiment? So um, I joined the parachute regiment. You know, it's a bit of a change, you know, from fixing people to killing people. But um, uh, that's where I ended up as an infantry junior leader in Oswestry from the age of 15 to 17 and a half. Um, and that gave me a, a, a new home. It gave me a place to... Um, get some strong foundations in my life. Um, they carried on with my education, so I passed my CSEs. Um, I learned some self-discipline. I learned how to look after myself. I learned how to be part of a team. Um, I learned to teach um, and many other things. And I was put in with a bunch of very, very tough boys who um, gradually taught me, made me tough. Uh, I had to learn to be tough. Um, I wasn't to begin with. Um, and um, so for a while, I was very much at the bottom of the pecking order. And by the time I got the confidence to fight and fight back, which one tended to need to do with boys in a male environment, um, I overdid it. Okay. I uh, became, I went from being the whipped puppy to being the vicious dog at the top, um, which made me no friends. Um, at 17, I uh, went off to uh, all the shops. And joined the um, and joined the parachute regiment as an adult. Jumped out of aeroplanes. Um, things got really, really tough. And uh, I did my first tour of Northern Ireland when I was 18 years old uh, in West Belfast. Um, and I did um, another tour the next year and another tour the next year. And um, I got shot there. I ended up laying on a bomb there. Um, and discovered I was laying on a bomb, so I didn't go and lay myself on a bomb deliberately. <laughs> I laid on the ground to cover some friends who were going into um, a bar across the road in the dark and realised there was something that wasn't grass underneath my body. So I scraped away some dirt and there was a galvanised bucket with a taped-on lid facing a post office wall. And um, I immediately ran around the corner and said, oh, the bomb! And um, we called in um, the ammunition technical officer and it was January 1977, and it was freezing cold. And they'd actually tried to initiate it with a battery, but because of the cold and the ice, the, the battery hadn't been strong enough to set it off. So very lucky, very lucky. Um, yeah, same tour, I got shot. Um, I went home early and um, got uh, a few weeks in hospital. And so the guys in the battalion started calling me half-tour horseball. I was only there half the time. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, after after when I was uh, when I was uh, twenty twenty one, my mother uh, died of cancer, and she was thirty seven. I'd just come up to my twentieth birthday, and um, I joined a wonderful part of the parachute regiment called the uh, Vigilant Platoon, which were really the wild bunch, the best singers the best fighters, the best everything in the par- – everyone, every, every troublemaker in the battalions was put into the vigilant platoon. 
And it was an anti-tank guided missile platoon. And um, I would have stayed there forever, I think, but the, um, the army disbanded our platoon because a new missile came in. And um, they wouldn't let me go back to my parent unit, which was the 2nd Battalion of Paragit Regiment. They were going to make me stay with the 1st Battalion. Now, I was nothing wrong with the 1st Battalion, but I didn't want to go back there. I wanted to go back where I'd come from. I wore my blue flash, and I wanted to get my blue flash back and go back to uh, 2 Paramorta platoon. Um, and they wouldn't let me. Um, so I said, well, I know there's something you can't stop me doing. Uh, um, and I went up the office, um, and the battalion clerk um, said, I want the forms to go to the Special Air Service. And there was um, some Yorkshireman at the back. There's always a Yorkshireman at the back of the office. And he said, uh, you're far too young, Oswald. You think you're something special, do you? You'll be back with your tail between your legs, I'm telling you. And, um, yeah. He was wrong and I was right. Ah, uh, see. Yeah. So I went off. Um, I went off at the age of twenty-one uh, to um, try and get into the SAS. Now SAS selections a year long. Um, a lot of people don't realise that you do uh, the mountains, you do the jungle, you do the continuation training, you do the combat survival. You do if you're not already a paratrooper, you do the parachuting. And then you're on trial for six months and you learn a personal skill. Mine was medicine and my troop skill was climbing mountains. And um, at the end of that whole year, you then get qualified uh, as, on, on, although you've got your badge and you're in the squadron, you, uh, you don't get qualified till the end of that year um, as, a, as a qualified SAS soldier. But it took me two goes. The first go in uh, September 78, um, I failed, I didn't make it. Uh, the second time they kept me on, and the second time I passed. Um, only eight of us passed in the second one. It was the winter of January 1979, and uh, one man called Mike Keeley, uh, uh, an SAS major who was very famous for his courage, uh, died on my selection. He'd come up to join us in the terrible cold and ice and um, died of exposure on the mountains. Wow. Um, it was a pretty tough course, very tough course. It sounds it sounds tough. One one thing I definitely wanted to ask you. I've always wanted to ask someone is, how was it when you got shot for your first time? What was you thinking? What was you feeling? Well, my first time was actually my last time as well. Okay, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lesson. I didn't I didn't let it happen again. <laughs> Out of luck. Um, but I I was running down the road um, in Valley Murphy. And um, my, my, set, my, my patrol came under fire. And um, I went over and I thought I twisted my ankle. And so the guys grabbed me by the lift webs and dragged me through the entrance of the gate, pouring down in rain. And it was dark. And they laid me on the floor and they said, Where have you been hit? Where have you been hit? I'm going to cough. <laughs> and um, and um, I said, I've twisted my effing ankle. And they, were, and they all looked really disappointed. Um, they said, you know, oh, is that all? And just walked away and left me lying on my back in the rain. Um, took my weapon off me and unloaded it and left me lying there in the rain until the ambulance came. <laughs> so the um, armoured ambulance, the Saracen, came and they put me in the back and uh, switched the lights on and um, said, let's have a look. And um, it had gone through my putties. I used to wear putties around your ankles in those days, which are like big brown bandages. And um, it had gone through the putty and it was a 2-2 round. So it had entered and, and stopped on the bone. 
So the wound was quite small, but it had knocked me over and I had twisted my ankle. And the pain from the twisted ankle was far, far worse than the actual bullet wound. Wow. So, yeah. So, ah, now here's a good part because I went off to hospital with this hole in my leg yeah. and a badly twisted ankle. So they left a gap in the plaster to do the, to do the wound, put plaster on my leg and sent me home again. So half to a horse full, got another trip home. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. So, um, yeah. So it's, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's every cloud has a silver lining. It sure yeah, does. I didn't know, I didn't know I'd been shot at the time. I didn't know. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's it doesn't so amazing. always happen that way. It's just a matter of luck. I mean, yeah. if it's a high velocity weapon or it hits you in a different part of the body, you know, you can be just as quickly dead. That's true. Or just as quickly with with your arm shot off, you know, with one bullet, you know, poof, gone. Yeah. Oh, so. Wow. What is it like yeah. working in a team knowing that you have so many people necessarily under you that you have to be in charge of for instance what's it like um, working in a team knowing that you have all these people that i'm not saying that you need to look after them but you are kind of responsible for them in a way uh well in those days i was one of the junior ranks okay so you know um, and i had some marvelous leaders mm. um on two occasions i can think of uh where we got shot at um the patrol commander one of them was a great guy called my Isaacs, a Welsh guy. And um, as we got shot at, he just ran straight where the bullets go. We just ran uh, with him. You know, there was the enemy are firing at us, go straight at the enemy. And um, with that kind of leadership and with those kind of comrades around you, you know, highly motivated, highly trained guys, I loved it. Um, you know, I loved being a soldier. Um, I adored being one of the biggest and the baddest with the guns and on the streets and, um, it was exciting. It was, um, yeah, I, I just, um, it, it, a lot of it was down to the people I was with yes. and the, 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 out, the outstanding training that I'd been given yeah. and the fact that they prepared me mentally for that kind of thing. They'd made me tough before it happened. Jumping out of airplanes isn't just about getting to the ground. Jumping out of airplanes means that you face death by choice, yes. you know, as a young boy, uh, a young man, young adult, um, before you've ever been in combat, and I've never known personally a, a member of the parachute regiment to freeze for the first time he comes into combat. And I think partly because of the training and partly because of the leadership. That's a really good thing to actually know, especially for people who want to get into it or who are just starting in it. But what what there's a question for you, Robin, which is, You've done so much, but what made you decide to then become an inspirational speaker or motivational well, that, speaker? Well, that's you know that's jumping from the beginning right up to the end, really. Um, a few a few years back, um, I started um, putting up posts on Facebook, um, wise old paratrooper posts, and I yes. gave myself the tag wise old paratrooper. And uh, people started to enjoy them and come back on them and, and so on like that, you know. So um, that was part of it. And so I started um, I started producing some um, wise old paratrooper books. You know? Oh, cool. Oh, that <laughs> that's was cool. <laughs> that's the second one. No. Yeah, that's the first one. 
That's the second one. Ah. Me after I came out of uni. And that's the third one. It's supposed to be me in a few years' time. <laughs> oh, don't say that. <laughs> so you've got you got the words of, more words of, and last words of the wise old paratrooper. So I started doing that, but a charity got in touch with me and said, can you come and do a motivational speech for us? And it was um, for Julia's House, a children's hospice down in Devon. Yes. Uh, Dorset, down in Dorset, near Poole. And um, it's a children's hospice with respite care for parents, and they do an absolutely marvellous job. And um, I always say that they're my special forces because they deal with some of our worst nightmares, you know, our children dying. Um, so I did this motivational speech, and they said, um, uh, you know, oh, well, that was fantastic. You know, would you would you like to um, do another one? So. Um, the um, company that introduced me to them introduced me to somebody else, and and then I, I got to be doing three or four a year, and I started to realise it was work. So then I started charging for them. <laughs> um, but last year, COVID, you know, just killed everything because yeah, you did. can't move, you can't congregate. So last year was a difficult year. We didn't do any, and we're we're hoping to do some more when the crisis is over um, this year coming. But um, what I do is this, I talk about my life and my life experience and what I've learned from it. Um, I learned from being a bullied kid. Um, I learned from uh, dealing with adversity, um, leaving, the, leaving the military, how to become a civilian, um, being a parent. Oh, you know, there's, um, there's all sorts of uh, things there. You can, you can take that format and you can – adjust it for any particular audience so i've talked to i've talked to um, primary school children in a different way than i would talk to um, an airborne reunion or i would talk to um, a bunch of uh, executives or a bunch of um, uh, one, one occasion purely female audience and so you uh, you adjust slightly i mean if you've got a bunch of paratroopers out in front of you, you're not going to tell them about how, how scary it is to jump out of an aeroplane. Yeah. Um, but if you've got a bunch of women out there, you're definitely going to tell them about the birth of your first son while you were at war in the Falklands. You know, so, <laughs> uh, and you're going to get all the, ah, uh, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you get that from the guys too. No, I think everyone has some form of compassion, regardless of man or woman. Or it's, it's just, yeah, it's there. Some people don't, but they're rare. They're rare. Um, some people hide it. Um, some people um, are ashamed of it. Uh, they see they they've been maybe they've been intimidated and bullied so much that they're frightened of showing any weakness. Okay. Um, yes, I understand. So they get they get flippant and cynical, and they pretend that they don't care. Deep down inside, a lot of people do, but there are occasional people as I said, who are narcissistical and psychopathic, mm -hmm. who genuinely don't uh, care about consequences or people or feelings. They don't empathise. And I've come across a few of those in my life as well. Um, and you have to learn how to deal with them. <laughs> how did you deal with them? By convincing them I was as crazy as they were. Yeah, that's a good way. Mm. Yeah. Um, that way... Um, and maybe to a certain extent I was, but I did empathise and I was frightened, but I was prepared to fight them 
if necessary. And I never tried to, I never lied, you never lie to a nutter. You always tell them the truth. A nutter being a common term for psychopath, but you know, you never lie to them. You always tell them, am I frightening you? Yes. You know, um, yes, but I'll still fight you. Um, but you do frighten me, that kind of thing. You know, just, just being straight with them um, makes it, um, makes it a workable relationship. Hmm. Would, would you say that you being bullied turned you into a bully or do you believe that you being bullied turns you into somebody stronger? Um, being bullied is, in the first instance took away my, by my stepfather, mm -hmm. took away my ability to negotiate. Yes. Um, so when you get, you hear that noise? Mm -hmm. That was the ice running down the windows. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. There's the ice running down the windows on the roof here. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, where was I? Yeah, it takes away your ability to negotiate. Yeah. So when a young person's up in front of an authority figure yeah. and they go, I don't know, you've got nothing to say for yourself. No. It's usually because they don't trust the people they're talking to, they don't trust authority figures. The authority figures that they've had in the past have brutalized them. And if they answer back, they get whacked for answering back. So they stop answering back. And then when you come across another authority figure, a policeman, a churchman, a, um, a mentor, um, you have to understand that uh, these lads have had it knocked out of them. They don't trust you. They don't believe that you're going to listen to a word they say. And, um, you know, so that makes you remote. And because you're remote and distant, then people think you're a bit weird or unfriendly. So then you don't make friends very well. So it didn't turn me into a bully. It turned me into an extremely violent person. So if someone was looking for it, then I was going to give it them first. You know, if anybody was looking for a fight, anybody started on it, they were going to get it. There was no half, there was no half measures. Um, but I never went looking for somebody. I never... I never went picking on people, but if somebody was picking on me by hell, you know, um, yeah. then I was going to go. Um, I was going to go over the top with it, and um, that was the case until I turned up in Hereford. And um, while I was going between the selection I failed and the, the next one which I uh, passed, um, I met my future wife Heather, and um, she was like. Um, I was like the dog that had been poked with a stick too many times, mm -hmm. and she got in a cage and tickled my ears, you know. And uh, <laughs> and um, I, I tell her even today, and I say it in some of my talks, that, you know, she saved me. Um, she gave me back my humanity because it was always there, but it was hidden under all this other brutality. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't necessarily the brutality of being a soldier. It was the brutality of being abused and bullied physically as a uh, as a boy um that continued because of my cynicism as a, when i was a boy soldier so i found it very hard to make friends and that stayed with me for a long long time but um but heather um uh, managed to get me to show my emotions uh three years later i married her it's our 40th anniversary this year of marriage wow. We've been together for three years we've got um five kids, 10 grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. So like my mother, we started young. 
<laughs> but um, yeah, she had two baby girls when I met her. And she was the foster, um, so they, they're included in the five. Yeah. But my, first, my my personal first child, Alex, was born uh, four days after the surrender in the Falklands. Oh yes. So um, I was in the Falklands War, and um, my um, Alex was born on the 18th, and the enemy surrendered on the 14th. So I got the news while I was down in Port Stanley. How did that make you feel? How did that make you feel, Robin, when you actually got the news? Um, I was pleased that mum and baby were were healthy, but I was too far away to really um, enjoy it or understand it. And uh, I got home when he was 10 days old. And uh, I've got a photograph of me. Uh, holding him in those first couple of days and him looking up at me. Uh, it's on my Facebook page. And um, I re- do remember the first time I picked him up. And um, he's. Um, it was an overwhelming joy, overwhelming. And uh, I wrote a little poem, a little one stanza poem about it not long afterwards. And I think he said something like, uh, here we are both with our roles. My father, your son, a joining of souls. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have a drink. You might have one as well. <laughs> no, no, I've got mine here with me. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll go for it. it was, um, you know, for me, it was um, it was a, it was a wonderful joy. I was present for the next two, for Charlotte and for Oliver. Yeah, um, when they were born. Um, so um, and being a paramedic, I. Uh, I was I was Britain's uh, ninth paramedic, and uh, I got zero zero nine on the certificate, oh, yeah, and I yeah. wanted zero zero seven. You know, so it was a shame. Oh, <laughs> uh, double oh seven, it's all right. Um, double oh seven. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> we got to remember, Sean Connery's the actor. I'm the real thing. See, that's <laughs> very true. Actually, that is very true, Robin. I agree with you yeah. there. See. Was there ever a time when you broke any rules? And did you ever get caught breaking any rules? Um, I got, I, I broke a lot of rules when I was a young paratrooper in Aldershot in terms of uh, violence, in terms of fighting. But Aldershot was an extremely violent place, but it was contained within the military. So it didn't involve the civilian population of Aldershot. It tended to be soldiers fighting amongst themselves and um um you know so yeah that, that, those 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 cases but um i'm the I'm, there's a great film a great james cagney film called uh, angels with dirty faces which is a 1940s film i think and uh, james cagney um and his friend as boys are running away from the police They've been nicking stuff and they run away from the police and his friend gets over the fence and escapes and he gets caught and ends up in the prison institutions and he ends up getting um, executed for murder at the end after being a gangster. And the person who reads him, um, reads um, the, um, gives him the last rites um, is his friend who escaped over the fence. Oh, wow. And life is, so, you know, I say that because life is often about who gets caught and who doesn't, mm-hmm. you know? And um, um, I never got caught. So consequently, I ended up being an upstanding and upright citizen later on in my life. 
Yes. But had I been caught and convicted um, of some of the violent things I was involved with as a young as a young man, mm-hmm. you know, it could have been a completely different story. So it's a question of luck sometimes. Angels with Dirty Faces, yeah, it's a great film. I've written it down now, actually, Robin. Yeah. So I'm going to definitely watch it because I'm always looking for something good to watch and that has a story. Yeah, I, I, I miss. I, I love. Um, I love the old films now because uh, the old films because they're so well told. The story is there. Um, it's beautifully directed and told. Whereas you don't need special effects. If people yes. are bonking in the bedroom, there's a twitch of a curtain. That'll do it. Our imagination does the rest. We don't need a five-minute sex session on That's the, true. in the film. That the is story true. has been told. Um, people understood that better, and you don't need magic, magical special effects to tell a great story. Um, you know, so um, I, I do trend, tend to go back to some of the older, better-told films these days rather than the big blockbusters, although I am a... A Star Trek fan. Oh, you too. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's cool. That's my that's my uh, disappear into fantasy there. No, that's all right. That's absolutely fine. If I could get you one of those, I would. <laughs> Let's talk about empowerment. Yeah. Because I believe that's something really important. What does empowerment mean to you as an individual, and how do you believe that you empower other people? Yeah, so that's a, that's a that's a question that I have considered before. Empowerment um, empowerment comes from developing self confidence. Mm-hmm. Self confidence at first, a lot of the reasons that people don't lack confidence is because they think that the people they idolise aren't like them. Very true. For example, soldiers, special forces soldiers, aren't frightened, or they don't make mistakes, or some of them aren't, you know, alcoholics or, or gambling addicts or, um, or or don't mess things up, or some of them are even cowards. Um, but you know, they they create this image and then they want to be like that image, and they're disappointed in themselves because they can't be. And when I wrote, um, I've got it here. <laughs> when I wrote my autobiography, Fighting Scared. Oh wow. Yeah, and I wrote that in 2002, um, and that's my whole life story up to the age of about 45. Um, it was from my birth up to the death of my father, actually, uh, my stepfather. Um, I, I cover that in some depth, and uh, I had quite a lot of people come to me and say, when I read that, or when I heard your lecture, um, I realized for the first time in my life that there was nothing wrong with me, that it was okay to be scared, that it was okay to screw up, that it was okay um, that all these amazing people you see in the movies, their fantasies, and all these people that, you know, you put up on pedestals are just like you. The queen is just like you. She feels the same things you do. She gets really upset when the kids screw up. You know, she gets mad when they get divorced. She doesn't know what to do about the grandchildren making all that noise. She kicks the corgis when no one's looking. You know, she's a human being. Just <laughs> kicks the dogs. <laughs> I don't really know if she kicks the corgis, you know. I know I that nobody know. else dares to. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah. <laughs> They're just people. We're all just people. But the, we're individuals. Exactly. All unique. And that's what I love. Mm. All unique. How yeah. do you... What do you think the meaning of life is? This is a question that I find... Even I find it difficult to, to answer. Say the question again. What do you feel the meaning of life is ah. in your in your view ah, yeah yeah i think i think if there was a meaning of life i don't know um purpose in life mm. to have some purpose in life means i think you have to do something that's meaningful yes you know and that doesn't mean winning and winning's tactical success is strategic you know I like um, that. you and you have to strive for something noble. So something meaningful and something noble. Something you can be genuinely proud of, no matter what happens in the rest of your life. You can turn around and say, I did that good thing, or I tried to do that good thing. And it was important because it was important because it made somebody else's life better. I think a lot of the time um, people want quick fixes. And I don't know if that's a modern thing or it's always been the case. And they also demand happiness. And there's, um, I don't know if you, how, how, how much you read, but um, there's um, a Russian called Dostoevsky. Um, and he, he basically said, it doesn't matter how happy you are, um, you'll always be unhappy because you haven't got the next thing. And then you'll get that and you haven't got the next thing. You know, I'll be happy if I get a nice car, get a nice car. Or I'll be happy if I had a newer model. I'd be happy if I had newer headlights. I'd be happy if um, I had a different girlfriend. I'd be happy if, um, you know, and so on. And, of course, you know, I think people genuinely make themselves unhappy because they're always striving for happiness. That's true. Uh, which is a state of mind. And um, so the meaning of life, uh, to be fulfilled in life, uh, do something meaningful and do something noble. Um, I really genuinely believe that wholeheartedly. It's not just words. Um, you can you can become old and you can look back on those things with pride. You, you can look back on a medal on the wall and say, oh, I won a race. Um, but there's some things about athletics, sports, which, um, you know, they're, they're there for the, the, for the genetically gifted. Yes. Um, you know, you can't play basketball as a top professional unless you're six foot eight. You know, if you're genetically you're genetically selected to be in that profession at that high standard, you can be as skillful as you like. But you're only five foot six; it ain't gonna work. You know. That's true. Um, unless yeah. you can jump really high. Yeah. Um, so I love sport. Um, I love competitive sport. I love athletics. Um, um, so I'm not taking anything away from it. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I. I think it's a really, really good thing to do. But um, when you're special at something, when you're a winner at something, it's not winning the race that's important. It's what you do with the credit you get for being that winner. So there you are. You are you're the gold medal winner at the Olympic Games. Wonderful. I've made a million pounds. Everybody wants me to be a, to sponsor their products. Aren't I a great guy? I've got a great car and a great girl. I do this. I'm doing this. What, did you, what else did you do? You know, did you help a children's hospice? Did you set up a charity? Did you go and talk to young kids? Did you help people with 
that victory that yeah. you know God gave you, if you believe that God gave it to you, or genetic genetics gave it to you, if you don't want to look at it that way. You know, you're lucky. You were born with those gifts, and now do something noble and worthy with them. Yeah. See, see, that's that kind of leads me on to my next question, Robin. Is when was the last time you felt totally at peace with yourself? Oh, I can tell you that. And um, it won't be the answer you expect, actually. Um, two years ago, mm -hmm. um, I had just finished six months of chemotherapy. Wow. Which made me incredibly ill. And then I had to go, I had to recover from the chemotherapy and go into hospital and um, have my bladder removed. Um, and the morning, as the morning came for the operation, and I hadn't had any pre-meds at this time um, because the nurse couldn't get the, couldn't find a vein to put them in. And I just laid there and totally accepted my situation. I totally accepted that I might not wake up. I totally accepted that they were going to take away my um, my bladder, my prostate, and everything that went was associated with that part of my body would never work again. And um, I just completely accepted it. And I completely relaxed and felt it, it was a, a peculiar sensation um, of peace. Yeah. Uh, so that's the last time. And um, it's uh, two years since I had the op and, um, you know, I'll never be the same again, but I'm, I don't have any cancer. Exactly. <laughs> and you yeah. live to tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. See? So that's the last time. I like that answer. It's actually really nice. It's actually, it's, I'm, I'm sorry for what happened to you. But I'm glad that you shared it to let people know there is life even after something tragic could happen. Well, I could look at what I lost and I could look at the fact that I'm still alive. Yeah, of course. Um, and my wife's watching TV in the bedroom just around the corner there. Yeah. And uh, my kids are all great, you know, and uh, and so on. So, you know, it's um, uh, don't look at what you've lost. Look at, you know, don't, don't worry about the penny you lost. Worry about the penny you're going to find. Um, that's a good say i'm gonna yeah. use that night i'm definitely gonna use that <laughs> i'll charge you <laughs> that's okay that's fine <laughs> i don't mind <laughs> if you could change anything in the world right now what would you change and why would you change that particular thing anything in the world mm -hmm. without going into flights of complete fantasy um <laughs> I would try to, I would actually try to guide Western liberal governments away from being bipartisan, from two party systems where people are in government, instead of being in government to, for everybody to benefit, do something that benefits the people, they seem to be constantly in conflict with one another that's so true. it's a good idea but it's your idea so i'm not going to support it we've seen it in america for the last four years but we've also seen it in the united kingdom as well yes and um, there are other countries in europe 
that um, have a circular government. They don't have left and right uh, benches. Um, and everybody believes that they're there for <clears throat> to make decisions on behalf of the people. They disagree, they debate, they uh, vote, but they don't vote just along party lines. And I think one of the biggest, most damaging aspects of <clears throat> excuse me, British life at the moment and American life has been this um, has been this political movement that has uh, fed on our anxieties and made and, and put people into groups that we don't like um, and made made you fear them, made you dislike them, and so on. Um, we see it. We see it in a lot of other aspects. Um, populism. Uh, they group people together, male, female, black, white, Asian, Muslim, Christian, um, and so on. And as soon as you start to put people into groups, you dehumanize them. You stop them being individuals in your mind and in other people's minds. And that's what politics, populist politics tends to do at the moment. So one thing in my fantasy world, in my utopia, would be to take the House of Parliament and make a circular uh, bench, and with 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 place where nobody sits and everybody's mixed up, like with a rugby crowd. Yes, you know where everybody's mixed together, and um, and then they talk and they communicate and they they're in contact with each other and they vote against one another's policies, but they're not voting against one another's parties. So there we go. How about that one? <laughs> I like that. That's a really good one, actually. That's a really really good one. Here's one for you. If if you were yourself as you are now sitting there and then you had your 17-year-old self in front of you, what advice would you give to your 17-year-old self? I think I would say um, stop being disappointed in people. That's um, a good one. Because when you're disappointed in people, nobody will ever come up to the standards that you want them to come up to. I had to learn so, that. Yeah, um, because of being bullied, mm -hmm. um, I think that I was looking for everybody to be Jesus Christ, all my mentors, all my sergeant majors, all my leaders. All, I expected them to be perfect people, and they all disappointed me because they weren't. And it took me a long time to realize that, um, you know, they're just human beings with rank and authority. Um, so. I think I would have been a happier young man if I hadn't set such high standards for the people that, um, for my friends, as much as anybody else, yeah. I like that. Fortunately, I didn't do that with my wife. Oh, <laughs> no, but she's different. She's in a whole different, you know, bracket. Yeah. She's in a whole different era, so she's fine. She's absolutely fine. What is the best advice, Robin, that you have ever received that has impacted your life? Um, well, lots, um, but I can think of one thing that comes directly to mind, mm -hmm. and that was, um, uh, uh, I, think he's, I think he was um, a colonel, um, and his surname was Hall, but I can't remember his first name, so I won't guess it, uh, Colonel Hall. And um, I went to get a job from him, in Alton in Surrey after I'd left the army and I went and I told him how amazing I was and I was an ex-SAS soldier and I'd done all these amazing wars and I could shoot people from a thousand meters and and so on 
And he said, Robin, he said, I'm not going to give you a job. I'm going to give you a piece of advice. He said, when you go for a job, he said, tell the person how you're going to make them money or how you're going to save them money. I met him 20 years later and I reminded him that he told me that. Yeah. What did he say? Um, he smiled, he just smiled. We were at a dinner, a parachute regiment dinner, and he just smiled. <laughs> See? Yeah. <laughs> That's good advice. It you is good advice. Job, tell them how you're going to make him money or save him money. See? That's actually quite true. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're giving me some good advice today, Robin. What There's loads in my books. <laughs> hey, you didn't give me one. <laughs> <laughs> You can find them on Amazon.co.uk. Okay, I'll go on there. See, all right, you put me in my place there. That's fair enough. <laughs> I like. You see, guys. Wise old paratrooper.co.uk. <laughs> ah, see, now I know. See, guys, go and support. Okay. What would you do differently, Robin, if the word judgment was taken out of the dictionary? So, if there was no judgment in the world, what would you? have done or what would you do differently hmm. we're constantly always getting judged by people is as soon as we step out how we look how we dress what music we listen to we're always constantly getting judged but if there was no judgment in the world what would you do differently i i think if we don't set standards for one another mm -hmm. standards of behavior if we don't have institutions, uh, if we don't have rules that we're expected to abide by, yes, then we have chaos. That is true. Um, there are there are times in my life where I would genuinely have um, seriously hurt somebody, if not killed them, mm -hmm. if I hadn't been concerned about the consequences. As I got older and I learned more, I realised that some of the things that I want to do are just morally wrong mm -hmm. but i was an immoral person when i was young i'm a moral person now um so you know uh, um so it, those judgments those standards um they have um they have a purpose and they're good purpose most of the time sometimes they're wrong they're wrong if you're judging somebody by the color of their skin mm -hmm. they're wrong if you're judging somebody by the accent they speak with um, but we all make judgments. Every time we meet somebody or even see somebody across the room, we make judgments based on what we visually see. That's and true. And what we hear. Yeah. Um, if somebody sat on the other side of the room and they're swearing loudly, you've made a judgment. That's it. You've put them in a category. It's it's just nature. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But how do you think we could stop that, though, through... Do you think we could actually stop that? Well, I think in the I think in the biblical sense of mm -hmm. judge not lest she be judged, yes. um, in the sense of trying not to be part of a group of malicious character assassinators, assassinators, you know, where you you sit in a group and um, constantly look for the reasons to malign other people mm -hmm. um, is something you should. Um, steer away from when i find myself um, in company like that i usually rub my hands and say right let's talk about someone we like shall we ah yes change uh, it, it change um, it up. 
it does make people go quiet. <laughs> um, people judge other people sometimes simply because they want to feel superior to them. Because That's they, very true. They want to go up that pecking order. And that tends to be a natural part of human behavior as well. But to be civilized, we need to overcome that. You know, if, if we want it, and, and being civilized and being well behaved is hard work. You know, um, I don't know the name of the comedian, um, but she plays the old woman and she swears, and um, I can't remember her name. Uh, or whatever, you know, the girl that does that. Yeah. And she plays an old lady. And we've all met old ladies and old men that tend to swear. Um, yeah. where when they were younger, they didn't. It's because they're so bloody tired. Um, and it's hard work to be well-behaved. It's so easy to be badly behaved. That's true. It's crazy. It's, <laughs> That's true. It's hard work. It's hard work not to swear. It's hard work to use the right diction, to use the right words, to think about what you're doing. It's so easy to just say, oh, bollocks. <laughs> oh, whatever. <laughs> Oh, what what would you like your legacy to be when you feel like you've had enough? You're done. I'm done. What? Would, how would you like people to remember you? Uh, that's easy. Ooh, because I, like I that. was a um, what was it? Autographica at the uh, National Exhibition Centre with Tony Curtis, the 1950-60 okay. star, and he was in his eighties and. Um, he, uh, he had bad lungs at the time, and he was supposed to do the, the presentation to the audience, but he got ill. And so I was supposed to be the warm-up man. Robin, you've got 10 minutes, and then Tony Curtis is coming on. And then he said, Robin, can you, um, can you do an hour? So I did an hour. And at the end of it, I said, because um, there were all sorts of people there. There were astronauts, people who had landed on the moon, uh, Bond girls. Um, there were all sorts of really, you know, incredible people from television and the movies. And so what do you say to people like that when, you know, you've got to give them something to go away with? And I, if I get the words right, I said, it doesn't matter whether you've landed on the moon or whether you've been a special horses soldier or whether you've been a television star. At the end of your life, when you're gone, the greatest accolade that anybody can ever give you is to say he was a good man. Yes. That is very true. It's simple, but it's effective. Yeah. See? That's and I perfect. Would say that. <laughs> That's perfect. I like that. Where can we find you, Robin, on all your social medias? I've been lucky to be able to have you here on the Ask People podcast. So this is where... I turn around and I say thank you. But before I say thank you again, please could you let us know if anybody else would like to get in contact with you to even have a podcast with you or just talk to you about what you've been through and your books also. Yeah. How can they find you? Well, it's, it's quite easy, actually. You just put Robin Horsfall. There's no E in Horsfall. So it's yes. H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L. -L. Yes. And um, just put it in Google. And about 30 pages come up, and you can find almost all my sites there. You can yes, find my true. Facebook page. You can find Wise Old Paratrooper. You can find my books on Amazon. Um, I've got a new book coming out next year, um, which, is, um, which is called Warrior Poet, A Soldier's Songs. And I'm looking for a, an agent or publisher at the moment 
And um, it's a, I broke my neck when I was 56 um, doing karate with my oldest son, Alex. And um, oh my I didn't gosh. get paralyzed, but I, I couldn't teach karate anymore. So um, I was 50, was I 50? I was 54. And um, so I went off to university and did English Lit with Creative Writing as an undergrad mature student in a, a classroom of 21-year-old to 23-year-old women, um, which was an interesting experience that I wouldn't repeat. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was hell. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, but it was. I learned a great deal, and I really got into poetry and their forms, and and so I've um, I've written a I've written this book um, called uh, Warrior Poet Soldier Songs, which is uh, an illustrated book of poems, which ha has a military leaning to it, but it has all the um, love and hate and uh, difficulties of life, and it has a a little bit of politics about Trump in it as well. <laughs> oh, that should be interesting. Yeah, so watch out for that one too. Definitely. I'll let you guys know when it's out, most definitely. Robin, this is the time where I turn around and I say thank you so much for your time and your patience and your wisdom for coming on the Ask People podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Let's do it again one day. Oh, we get around too. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, right, guys, he's giving me a round two. So we're going to get a round two. <laughs> thank you so much, Robin. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the Ask People podcast. And please remember, you can subscribe to Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and any other platform that you prefer listening to. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also donate to the Ask People podcast by simply going to the Savvy Rocks website or just typing in www paypal.me forward slash us people podcast guys thank you so much for listening stay happy stay positive and as always please continue to be kind to one another <laughs> I enjoyed that. That was fun. But my wife says, you know, getting me getting a man to talk about himself is easy. It's getting him to shut up that's hard. <laughs>